This is an ABC podcast. A pandemic treaty really would respond to what are widely known or criticized as governance failures, and some even describe them as failures of humanity during the pandemic. And given the consequences of COVID are so vast, so extensive, we have many hundreds of millions, more than 646 million cases reported and more than 6 million deaths. And those figures are almost certain to be vast underestimates. Katrina Plamondon there from the University of British Columbia. I'm Anthony Fennell. And you're listening to Future Tense, an ABC Radio National production. We have never been before seen a pandemic sparked by a coronavirus. We have rung the alarm bell loud and clear. Exactly three years ago, the World Health Organization declared a global emergency. Much has been achieved in fighting COVID-19 since that time, yet still there are many virologists and public health officials who worry about our preparedness for future disasters. Hence the World Health Organization's push for a global treaty. Assistant Professor Plamondon has approved stakeholder status with the WHO's intergovernmental negotiating body. And as such, she's been a part of the pandemic treaty negotiations. I don't think people would say that COVID was minor in their lives. It's a huge impact for those of us living in countries that are really well-resourced. And for those living in the majority of the world's population, so 85% of the world's population lives in low- and middle-income countries, the social and economic impacts were far worse. We've seen 20 years of regression and progress against the Sustainable Development Goals, for example. And a lot of this has to do with inequities in access to essential medicines and in information sharing. And so the pandemic treaty in principle would provide the world with a tool to privilege and prioritize health and human rights at that global collective level in a way that we currently don't have access to. And in a way that allows health and human rights to take precedent over other international agreements. So this is really at the core of it about equal access to good health care and vaccinations. Yeah, it's a, about equal access to essential medicines, to life-saving medicines that are essential to not just the health of people in any one country, but to our collective global health. And I think it's also about how we care about other humans in the world. So it's about how we weigh our global obligations versus our obligations to citizens. So it's a tension. It's about finding a way to navigate the tension between national obligations to the citizens of a country within their own borders and what the consequences of actions within any one country are for people elsewhere in the world. Because we don't live, I mean, whether we, we, whether we like it or not, a virus doesn't really care about the lines we draw on a map. And we saw that unfold very clearly during the pandemic. Didn't matter how hard we tried to contain it. Viruses don't care that we have borders. And so what we do in Canada, what we do in Australia matters to other people in the world. How would this kind of treaty, how would it complement uh, the international health regulations and also the domestic regulations within countries that already exist? So the international health regulations do provide some measures, especially for surveillance. They're widely seen as 
technical and they didn't actually provide all of the tools or mechanisms needed to navigate some of the challenges that presented during the pandemic. And so right now, interestingly, the international health regulations are under a whole series of negotiations themselves and are being amended. And it might be that a new version may address some of the gaps we saw during the pandemic, but those regulations don't carry the kind of legal weight that a treaty or convention might. And so a better example of the kind of tool that this would provide is the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. And why that matters is because when there is a convention like the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, it tends to result in legislation within countries. So it's taken up in different ways and it helps to create more effective mechanisms for asserting those state obligations to others in the world and to its own citizens. So it it creates a legal mechanism and a pathway for accountability that the international health regulations wouldn't actually do. And is the idea that this treaty would be binding on, on signatory states? Also a good question, and that's currently under negotiation. So I think we won't really know that answer until early in 2024. So once the member states enter into the period of negotiations, they will spend time deciding about how binding it will be and what kind of legal language we'll see in it. Right now, as countries are trying to determine what those terms of negotiation will be, what I observe is that a lot of low and middle income countries and certain groups of countries are arguing for stronger legal language that would make it more binding. And a lot of high income countries are using a language that is diplomatically avoiding some of the legal teeth that the treaty might offer. So giving them more pathways to opt out or avoid being held to account, whereas low and middle income countries need and want tools to hold high income countries to account. So that discussion about how effective it could be if it's not binding, it is going on at the moment. Absolutely. And I think this is really a make or break moment for the world and our global governance and how willing high income countries are to recognize their obligations for their behavior on a global stage and do something about it. It's very easy to avoid accountability when you have the resources to circumnavigate the most harmful consequences of not having access to something. So in Canada, for example, our country engaged in pre-purchase agreements with pharmaceutical companies, as did Australia, because we could. And we secured many more doses than were needed to vaccinate our population, even in the first months of vaccines being available. While we did this, we did other things that limited low and middle income countries' access to vaccines to really extremes, to a point where at the end of 2021, the 15% of the world's population living in high income countries the vast majority of people who wanted to be vaccinated could be. Whereas 85% of the world's population living in low and middle income countries had maybe 2% to, in some countries, up to 20% of the population covered. And we're still really only at about 20% coverage in the lowest income countries in the world. So it's easier to avoid the consequences and easier to assert arguments within our own countries about not needing to be held accountable because we're not suffering the consequences and our health systems are already better resourced than those in low and middle income countries. So it's a moment when the world could decide that we really do value the lives of people equally or we don't. What I hope is that we will rise to the occasion and do better and learn from our past failures instead of continuing to 
just not learn from our past failures. Now, this is a World Health Organization initiative. Who else, though, was involved in this process of discussion and creation, aside from WHO member states? Yeah, so I think a really interesting and promising approach they've taken is to be quite inclusive. And I hear frequent calls to maintain that inclusivity. So there are many stakeholder groups that were able to apply to participate as recognized stakeholders in these proceedings. So the group that I work with, which is a research study focused on issues of vaccine equity, we are able to participate and join these conversations. We are able to provide written feedback and other groups like Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders and other civil society groups are at the table. We have networks and multilateral organizations that are participating or representatives from those groups that are participating. And then there are some private sector corporate bodies that are participating, which I don't think would be a surprise, but sort of, for example, the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers is at the table. So we have many different stakeholder voices that are contributing to and able to provide input on what this instrument or treaty might look like. So it's easy to be sceptical about the value of these kind of international treaties, but given the topic and given what you've said, there's you know at least a real possibility here of effective change in the future. Yeah, there is a real possibility. The Framework Convention on Tobacco Control has shown some good promise and countries that do opt in and have integrated legislation within their own national frameworks are seeing good steps towards reduced use of tobacco and reduced consequences of tobacco use. So we have seen success and progress in another example. And I think it's important to remember that although international health governance tends to have a trickier time with accountability and enforcement mechanisms. We do have good accountability and enforcement mechanisms in our global financial institutions. So it's not outside of the possibility for humans who create all these international agreements to find ways to make them function better. We make them up, we set the rules. When the rules aren't serving us and are actually harming our collective futures, we can imagine different pathways forward. And I think embracing our agency in that is one of the things that will make a big difference. So if the world's leaders can imagine this treaty serving us well to prioritize and privilege human life and health over profits, we can do that. The push for a global pandemic treaty it may not be getting much media attention, but it is underway. Assistant Professor Katrina Plamonton there from the University of British Columbia. We talk about the internet as a heavenly, starry thing, a thing of satellites and the cloud. So you might be surprised to hear that virtually all of our global internet traffic actually passes through undersea cables. Just over 400 or so, according to estimates. And we're now being warned that that reality makes our hyperconnected lives increasingly vulnerable. Here's Professor Serge Bessinger from Omnis Education in Paris. Submarine cables basically transport 99% of all the data around the world. In a country like Australia, it's absolutely crucial. If you had just even three cables severed, you would basically have no communication in Australia with the rest of the world. So they are absolutely essential to global business. Every day, there's about 10,000 
billion dollars that transits through these cables worth of financial transactions. That's basically six times the Australian GDP over one year. Well, they have been a source of value in the past. When you look at the Spanish-American War, it really was started with the American Marines cutting Spanish cables off Cuba and then off the Philippines. And the First World War was also initiated with some German Marines cutting French cables and vice versa. So basically, cutting cables has been an act of war for 100 years plus. And in recent years, we've seen a dramatic increase in acts of sabotage and displacements of cables, particularly the uh, transatlantic cables, the ones that link France and the UK with the USA. And I understand, given the, the conflict in Ukraine, there's been uh, concerns about what, in particular, Russia might be planning to do if they get desperate. Absolutely. Major concern right now is that the Russians could actually cut those cables so far There have been suspicions, but we think they have just merely displaced them, although they they might have cut some of them. It's very hard to tell, actually. And then, of course, we have China that has displaced a number of cables in the Atlantic in recent years. Are we also talking about non-state actors here? I mean, criminals asking for ransom, that kind of thing? We have that. We have criminals. We have a number of uh, subcontractors that are not happy with the way they are treated. We had that recently in the Mediterranean. We have gangs that steal cables, uh, believing that cables are, are valuable, gangs from you know, the Mediterranean and other parts of the world. But fishermen in uh, Vietnam that actually cut some cables and then try to sell them as well, because believing that these were worth millions. We've got all kinds of actors. And what's the ultimate risk here? I mean, how vulnerable are the world's communications because of this type of technology? We are extremely vulnerable. Uh, There's no way we can replace those cables. Having the equivalent bandwidth in satellites would take thousands and thousands of satellites of a technology we don't even have at the moment. So cables will stay for at least another 100 years. And they are very, very vulnerable. Now, this raises the question of whether or not we have the means to secure those cables. And I think in the case of Australia, there are questions right now as to whether we should create a naval national guard. The Japanese are being very serious at the moment. They are equipping some small shipyards with the means to to patrol. Typically, you have some... uh, civilian vessels that they're now capable of of patrolling and, and of course, repairing. The total number of repair ships in the world is about 40. I would say the most advanced are probably Japan and France. France owns nine repair ships. We're able to repair cables pretty much anywhere around the world. The Americans right now are thinking about expanding their small shipyard program, which is aimed at basically distributing capital expenditure grants to small shipyards that would be capable of launching ships that could have you know, a dual use. And then, of course, everybody is thinking about the Naval National Guard. Now, given the sensitivity of these particular cables, is an international approach necessary? I mean, it's one thing for various countries to actually beef up their security, but these cables link countries. They are international in and of themselves. Absolutely. I've proposed that there should be an international force. The issue, though, is that it's pretty hard for a country like, um, you know, maybe Germany, for instance, that, that is, doesn't really actually have cables landing on their shores, I mean, large cables, to finance the ships of England or France. And so we've got some countries that have pretty good assets, mostly British Navy, French Navy, American Navy, of course, that are right now doing the job for other nations that do not have the assets. And that's a real question. And look, if international cooperation was desired by major countries, what kind of cooperation would be effective in your estimation? 
we have proposed a number of possible ways to, to get out of this. One of them would be to say, look, we're going to allocate X ships for patrolling and X ships for repairs. And then the funding of these ships would be sh shared among countries that receive and send the data. There are talks at the moment about this. So, you know, basic question, why do we still rely on this form of technology, given it is so old and given, as you say, it is so vulnerable? Well, there is just no technical alternative. I mean, if you take Elon Musk's satellites, their bandwidth is ridiculously narrow compared with, with those cables. The quality, the speed at which data is transmitted, the sheer volume of data that you can get in those cables is just unbeatable. A sobering thought. Serge Bessinger in Paris from Omnes Education. Finally, to researcher Karen Bucker and communication of a very different kind between humans and other animals. Western science has traditionally privileged sight over hearing. As humans, we tend to believe that what we cannot observe does not exist. And because our sense of hearing is relatively weak compared to other species, there's a lot of communication in nature that simply passes us by. Many species communicate at frequencies higher than human hearing range in what is called the high ultrasonic, or species communicate at very low frequencies in what is called the infrasonic. So in the ultrasonic, you have bats and dolphins and moths and even rats and some of our primate cousins like the tarsiers. They're all communicating at these high frequencies. Our ancestors did once have this capacity, but we have lost it. At the low end of the sound range below human hearing capacity, that's where elephants and whales and even tigers and beavers and lots of species are able to hear these long, slow, powerful sound waves that can travel for many, many miles, even penetrate through solid walls and stone and soil. So in nature, silence is an illusion. All of this sound is occurring all around us all the time, but humans cannot hear most of it. And that is one of the reasons that Western science has only recently started listening to the sounds of nature across the tree of life. And we're now able to hear these sounds because of what? Because of the sophistication of the technology that we now have, including AI. Yes, exactly. So we're now able to hear these sounds of nature, even at frequencies beyond human hearing range, thanks to advances in digital technology, where small, lightweight, portable recorders can be placed anywhere from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintop from the Arctic to the Amazon. Some of these listening arrays are as big as continents. Some are tiny as a pond. Wherever they're placed, they can pick up sound 24-7 in a way that's very discreet. No human observer is present. The animals just go about their business. And so we're learning lots of wonderful things, recording enormous amounts of data and now we're able to decode the patterns in those sounds, decode those data sets using artificial intelligence, using natural language processing algorithms that are pretty much the same idea as what powers Google Translate. So we've got this amazing ability now to pick up on patterns that we didn't even know existed, and that's opening up a whole new world of social behavior in lots of other species. Does that mean that there's the possibility at some stage of communication with animals that we, we previously wouldn't have even imagined we could communicate with? Some scientists believe we are on the brink of inventing a zoological version of Google Translate, not in the 
immediate future. You're not going to open your phone tomorrow and have an option in Google Translate for, you know, Eastern African elephant or sperm whaleish. But scientists are compiling dictionaries of sounds made by those animals. And through using clever playback experiments and observing the animals in nature, they're slowly figuring out what different sounds mean. So longer term, yes, we will be able to have rudimentary two-way conversations. There's a, a really interesting researcher in Germany named Tim Landgraf. He does work with honeybees. His work sort of bridges between computer science and biology. And he's invented a little robot that is coded with the aid of artificial intelligence to go into the hive and communicate certain signals back to the honeybees. And sometimes those signals work. Usually they don't. We don't know why. But the fact that we can communicate anything at all to honeybees using a robot is evocative of the future scientists believe we can build, which is a future in which robots act as translation devices between humans and other species. And that's raising a whole bunch of ethical questions about the future of bioacoustics innovation. Because we could use that to better understand animals, to communicate with them, but we could also use it to exploit them, couldn't we? Absolutely. So every new technology can serve as a useful tool or a weapon. The digital bioacoustics tools we're now inventing can do a wonderful job at environmental monitoring and actually at endangered species protection. For example, some of these technologies are being used to listen for poachers in national parks, and this is helping guards prevent poaching. So that's an example of a positive use of digital bioacoustics. Conversely, though, <laughs> the poachers could also be using these technologies to engage in precision hunting, and you know, even more uncanny, some believe that we will be able to use digital bioacoustics to potentially further domesticate species that previously we haven't domesticated. Imagine if you could decode the language of species that have resisted communication, that would open up a whole new world of control. And this is where the need for some ethics and safeguards come into play. So in the book, The Sounds of Life, I discuss the ancient art of deep listening indigenous knowledge, traditional listening in place that reveals so much about the natural world. And this comes aligned with a set of ethics and safeguards about land stewardship and responsibility to place and kinship with other species that I think provides a very important ethical frame in which we could begin to exercise these newfound superpowers, these digital listening powers. What are we now discovering about the sophistication of the way various animals communicate? Are, are we starting to see species that have communication that we would equate with language? So language is a tricky term and how you define it will reframe how one answers that question. Some argue that human language is unique because of its symbolic content and that no other languages on earth possess such symbolic content. A lot of the researchers choose not to speak about language. Instead, they speak about information theory, whereby ecologically relevant information is communicated between sender and receiver in very nuanced and subtle ways. I'll give you one example. Most researchers until recently thought that turtles were largely deaf and mute. It was actually a researcher in Australia, Jacqueline Giles, who was the first to demonstrate that turtles have actually a pretty broad repertoire. This was followed up by research in Brazil, where the endangered 
Amazonian river turtle, a really magnificent animal that mysteriously gathers on nesting beaches, traveling across long distances. You have to imagine these turtles across the Amazon all find each other on a couple of beaches at one moment during the year. People wondered, how did they do this? Are they telepathic? Well, it turns out they're using acoustic communication. Not only that, researchers found that the baby turtles communicate through their eggshells before they hatch in order to coordinate the moment of their births. And the mother turtles are waiting in the water, calling to their babies in order to guide them into the flooded forest. So through sound, we've learned that turtles have a pretty complex vocabulary and also first evidence of parental care in turtles. The research on bats is even more amazing. You and I couldn't understand most bat language. Our computers can because they can hear it at the correct frequencies and decode the patterns. In the past decade, we've learned that bats have very complex vocabularies. They remember favors. They hold grudges. They can use labels for one another that indicate kin and family and individuality and gender, much like we use names. They trade food for sex. They socially distance and go quiet when ill. Baby bats learn to babble, just like our own children do, our babies, when human adults speak to their babies in Babelese, and the babies learn to speak the language in which they're hearing the babbling. Same thing happens with bats. So it's like holding up a mirror to our own species because so many of the behaviors they display are so similar once we've decoded those communication patterns. Now, are those language? Do they have symbolic content? Well, we know they have much more semantic complexity than we previously realized, but the debate actually is moving towards maybe we need to reframe our definition of language in order to incorporate all of the really fascinating ways that species across the tree of life communicate. Picking up on that point, I mean, has our egocentric view of the position of human life in the world, has that got in the way of what could have been a a far deeper understanding of life on our planet? One of the remarkable things about the history of digital bioacoustics research is the consistent resistance to each new set of discoveries. When bat echolocation was discovered over a century ago, Most scientists refused to believe it, partly because it was shocking that bats seemed to display a more sophisticated form of sonar than the military had just recently invented. How could that be possible? And yet it was. So there has been enormous resistance. And the brave researchers I profile in the book, the scientists who sort of painstakingly do the empirical work, have progressively winnowed down the anthropocentrism underlying a lot of this resistance. First, there was the assumption that species that are vocally active in ranges beyond human hearing range are mute and deaf. We've shown they're not. Then there was an assumption that only species with ears are capable of sensing sound. That too is not the case. We now have robust evidence that coral, for example, are acutely sensitive to sound, as actually are many plants. And so we are progressively expanding our understanding away from this anthropocentric approach to a newfound insight into the fact that probably every living species on earth is sensitive to sound, and probably most of them are far more sensitive than humans. Professor Karen Barker, author of the book, The Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the world of plants and animals. Next week on Future Tense, managerialism, an obsession with the professionalisation of leadership that's holding us back, not pushing us forward. 
managers believe, because they have power, they believe that they also have authority. Authority as authorization is a source of power, but the reverse is not true. Power is never a source of authority. Managerialism in a criminal justice context is about prioritizing economic resource saving over doing justice. What the concept of new public management does and its sister concept that came about later in the 1990s called public value theory, which again very similarly sort of said we should think about government the way we think about companies. But I think, you know, for a lot of reasons this really hasn't worked and in many ways these theories have done a lot of harm. How managerialism is stealing the future. A show I certainly hope my bosses won't be listening to. That's next week on Future Tense. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.